You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. All right. Hey, I'm going to talk at you while you eat, okay? So keep eating. Uh, but we, one of the things we do when we, we gather for these things is we do want to get into uh, the Word of God, just like we, we love food that nourishes our body. Uh, we believe the Scripture is the, the Word of God and Jesus the bread of life. And so uh, we want to s- satisfy and feed our souls this morning as well. But hey, today I'm going to give a message that I've never, ever, ever, ever uh, given before. Uh, I've never actually gone into this much detail uh, on this, this particular topic, but I thought it would be something that would be really uh, neat for us to talk about. And, and what, what happened was, is, uh, is we, as we were kind of planting and starting Redemption Church from scratch, like uh, within our hearts were a couple longings, some things that we really wanted to see uh, be part of, of, of a church that uh, we had the capability to do because it was brand new. Like there was, like there was no reason not to do it. And this was one of those things is we thought, hey, there's something really significant about eating a meal together. And as we read through scripture, uh, we see that the early church gathered for meals all the time. And, and it seemed like, uh, you know, the churches uh, lost sight of that somewhere. And, and, and maybe it's just something that other churches don't value as much and that's okay. But it's something that we thought, hey, for as long as we can, for as long as it's something we can do, we want to do it. And we think it's really important. Now, the thing is, it's more than just a desire. We think it's actually a biblical desire. In fact, uh, there's a, a huge theme about meals all throughout Scripture. In fact, today what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, the theology of meals. In fact, uh, most specifically what I want to talk about is five meals throughout Scripture uh, that are both important but also point us to Jesus. And so this morning I want to spend some time uh, talking about food and eating and getting around a table together. And so before we do that, here's what I want you to think about for a second. What is the best meal you've ever had? Just think about it for a second. What is the best meal you've ever had? Now as you're thinking about that, there's, there's probably three things uh, that inform that decision or that experience for all of us. Uh, the first one would be uh, the quality of the food. Uh, my guess is your favorite meal uh, isn't wrapped in paper that you picked up through a fast food window. That would just be my guess, okay? Is uh, like the McChicken for a dollar probably isn't your favorite meal. It could be, and we'll pray for you, but it's probably not, okay? Uh, now, now, here's the thing. It might be because the second thing is really important, the location and the atmosphere. That uh, Usually when, when we think about our favorite meal, it has to do about the quality of the food. And then we also probably the place that it is. Uh, I think for, for me, some of the favorite meals I ever had were uh, with my wife when we were first married on our honeymoon, eating food by a beach. That's just awesome. Not something that happens very often. Like, I can't remember the last time uh, we did that on our honeymoon. That was just kind of fun. Like, hey, let's uh, grab uh, some, something to eat here on the beach. That was great. So the environment, the place, the atmosphere of the place speak to that. And lastly, probably the most important is the company, the people that you're with. When you think about your, your favorite meal, it probably has to do with the type of food you're eating at a certain spot, in a certain atmosphere, with the right people. So 
Maybe that was, as you're thinking about your favorite meal, maybe that was like a family holiday. Maybe there was some family that you don't normally get to see and you got to go be with them. Maybe it was like a first date when you're like, hey, this was our, our first time we went on a date and this is where that relationship began. Maybe it was a place where a friendship began that you said, hey, this was kind of the significant turning point in that relationship and we've been friends since. Maybe it was an anniversary meal, but every single one of us probably have the greatest meal ever that comes to mind. And see, the reason that having a meal is really significant is because a few things happen beyond just eating when we share a meal together. Uh, when people get around a table and eat food, there's a few things that happen. The first one is we actually enjoy the people around us. That there's something in our culture where we run 100 miles an hour, that when we get around a table, it's not just about getting the food from the plate to the mouth, although that happens. It's also about enjoying the people around the table. There's that conversation. There's that moment of, hey, can you uh, pass that plate? And hey, how are you doing? And just letting the conversation flow. Uh, biblically speaking, that, that would be called fellowship, that we would just open up our hearts and open up our lives to one another and have conversation and see, check in on one another's lives and laugh and talk and, and share together. And there's another thing that happens when we have a meal, and what the Bible would call it is hospitality. That one of the things that happens is that if you don't know people really well, one of the things you normally do is invite them over for a meal so you can get to know them. That there's a, a certain level of intimacy that happens uh, at a meal. In fact, if you plug in and, and get to hang out around Redemption Church long enough, sooner or later you will end up at somebody's table. That's just kind of happens here. Somebody will say, hey, do you want to come over for coffee? Or hey, do you want to come over for a slice of pie? Hey, we'd like to get to know you. That, that There's something about inviting people over. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, people were ready to host strangers because they were told, hey, those strangers could actually be angels in disguise. So you should always be ready to host a stranger and welcome them in as a friend. You see, all throughout Scripture, this idea of relationship, this idea that you and I would belong to Jesus and that we would also belong to one another, that our love for God would translate into a love for one another, that the idea that I would have an intimate relationship with God would translate to mean I also have intimate relationships with people who are my family. We just call them the church. In fact, if you think about it, if you spend enough time in the New Testament, Paul uh, will talk about church discipline. And he'll talk about, hey, in the life of the church, there very well could be times where there's people who pretend to be okay with Jesus, but the reality is they live in open rebellion. They have sin that they've made okay, they pursue that sin, they wink at that sin, and they don't repent of it, there's no change in their hearts. And what Paul would say is the worst form of, of church discipline is the fact that you would break relationship with people. Yet the early church valued relationships so highly, I want you to see this, the early church valued relationships so highly that they said the worst possible thing that could happen is that we wouldn't invite somebody over to share our table anymore. That actually we would take someone that, that maybe is living in open rebellion, is pursuing sin, has become hard-hearted and stubborn towards Jesus, that one of the things we do is say, hey, if you're out of relationship, then uh, maybe you need to spend some time to think about that and pray about that so you're no longer welcome at our table. Isn't that interesting? When we live in a culture of church hopping, shopping, coming, and going, the early church said, no, 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 for us, relationships, it's one of the highest priorities. In fact, one of the worst punishments you could receive for open rebellion and sin as the church is simply saying, hey, I no longer let this guy or no longer let that gal happen 
at your table. In fact, if you want to see something kind of interesting, you can see in 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth actually has a situation where they tell a young man, hey, you can no longer come to the table. And if you follow through to 2 Corinthians, you see in 2 Corinthians, he comes back to the table. Because he, he, he sees that his rebellion against God is not just hurting him, that the sin doesn't just hurt him, it also hurts his church family and those around him, and he comes to repentance. Now here's the thing. There's all kinds of ways you can study the scripture. In fact, if you wanted to look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you could take different themes. Like you could look at period of time. So you could go, hey, we're going to study the creation story. We're going to study the early history. We're going to study the prophets. You, you could go that way and go all the way to Revelation, studying periods of time. Uh, you could study the Bible through covenants. You could say, hey, we're going to look at all the key covenants that God makes with certain people throughout the Bible. But one of the most interesting ways you can study the Bible is you can actually look at Scripture from Genesis to Revelation through the context of the meals. That meals were so significant in the Scripture that you can actually look at the church history, you can look at the redemptive history of the Bible, you can look at these meals, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at five meals, and I would say these are the five most important meals in Scripture. There's more. But we're going to look at the five most important meals in Scripture, and all five of these point to the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning, just in our time together, is quickly, we're going to walk from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to look at five meals that I think that point to Jesus, whose name is above all names. Before we do that, would you just pray with me real quick? Uh, Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for all that's already happened. We thank you for the, the chance we've had to be together. We thank you that uh, the meals that, that were brought here today, God, that they're just so good, and this time is so sweet. And Father, I pray that as we gather today, that you would open our eyes to see you, our hearts to love you, our ears to hear you, God. I pray as we take a quick uh, history lesson, as we go through your word from Genesis to Revelation this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us. God, I pray that you give us uh, just a new, a new view of you, God, a bigger, clearer picture of who you are, that we'd become more aware of your glory, more aware of our sin, and we become more aware of our need for you that is fulfilled in Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you just be with us this morning. I pray that you would be the one that speaks, and I would be silent, and that every word that is spoken in this place would be for your glory. In Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we're talking about meals throughout the Bible, uh, it would be the same thing that we talked about earlier, that you'll see meals in the Bible, and, and what happens is they'll have this context. Who are they with, and what was eaten, and what was done? And the first meal that actually impacts all of human history takes place in Genesis chapter 3. Hey, just to kind of catch you up to speed so we're all on the same page, God has created all things. Uh, he has spoken everything into existence. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and what God says to them is, hey, Everything that is in this garden is good and it's yours. There's just one thing. There's the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, and I don't want you to eat from that one. Now what happens is, is God creates all things and says, listen, hey, I want you to trust me on this one thing. And here's really what I believe is at stake. It's what I really believe what God is asking Adam and Eve is, do you love me enough? Do you trust me enough that if I tell you not to eat from that one, you would believe in me? Would you believe that I am so good? Would you believe that I really am the God that created you? Would you believe that I, I know what's best for you? Would you trust me and love me enough just to listen to me? Every, everything else is yes. 
except for that one thing. That's no. What the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan comes to Eve in the form of a serpent, of a snake. I love the way Revelation says it. It calls him a dragon. And he comes to Eve and he, he convinces her, hey, did God really say, did God really mean? And what happens is, is he says, hey, do you really think God's no meant no or should it really be a yes? And we know according to scripture that Adam and Eve are deceived, that they both eat from the fruit that God said not to eat from. Now this is really important because this is the first meal in the Bible that's not with God or for God. In fact, it's the first time that Adam and Eve ate anything that wasn't an act of worship. It was an act of disobedience. And they receive a sin nature. For the first time, Adam and Eve were separated from God. For the first time, Adam and Eve experienced what God never wanted them to actually experience. In fact, they were so afraid and so ashamed that when God came looking for them in the garden, they hid from the very God that created them. And God in his grace... God in his love for them, he clothes them. He provides for them and takes care of them. But God being a God of love and grace is also a God of justice, and he has to deal with their sin. He has to address their disobedience. And see, for the first time, Adam and Eve are separated from God. For the first time, Adam and Eve have now experienced a spiritual death, a separation, condemnation, and a consequence that all came from rebellion from God. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because they all sinned or because all men have sinned. Now, it's interesting. You look at this and you go, how, how could this be such a big deal? I mean, I mean, if you really take the context, like Adam and Eve reached in the fridge and grabbed a piece of fruit and it caused sin and death and separation, not just for them, but for all of mankind, and here's why. One of the things that I think we have to see in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3 is it's more than just a meal. It's more than just about what they ate. That ultimately, one of the things that happens when we gather for a meal, one of the things that happens when we get around a table and we share food with one another is one of the things we actually do is we pick a friend. We, 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 we pick who we're going to open our lives with. We, we pick who we're going to share with. We, we pick who we're going to allow to speak into our hearts and into our lives. And at this meal, what Adam and Eve decided is they decided that they were no longer going to align themselves with God, but rather they would align themselves with Satan. They chose in this meal that they would no longer be friends to God, rather they would be friends with Satan. That they chose that they would no longer obey God, but rather they would live in obedience to Satan that they chose in a meal that they would push God away and let Satan, the deceiver, in. See, when we eat, we don't just eat, that every meal we eat is worship. I mean, Paul goes as far as saying, do everything you do unto the Lord, no matter what you eat, no matter what you drink, do it as an act of worship. And at this meal, this meal of fruit, Adam and Eve decide to disobey, to push God away, and rather to realign themselves with the evil one. And this meal has significance for our lives. This meal has significance for all of humankind. Because in Genesis chapter 3, a meal is eaten and a friendship is forged in rebellion against God. And see, there's a consequence that's made, that there will be sin, that there will be strife, that things will be hard, that there will be enemies. 
But there's also a promise that's made. That there's a Savior that's going to come. There's one who is coming who will undo this. There's one who is coming that will make all things new. There's one who is coming where Satan the serpent will strike him on the heel, but the Savior will crush his head, and all things will be set straight, and all things will be made right, and all things will be made new. And God gives judgment upon Adam and Eve and their sin, and he kicks them out of the garden. And I've always thought about that. I've always thought, you know, getting kicked out of the garden seems just kind of like a little bit harsh. Like it seems like, it seems like the, the sin, the separation, the hardness of life that comes with the curse of sin, like that all seems really, really hard and really, really difficult. And it seems like sufficient punishment. I always wondered, how come Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden? And I was just researching that this week, and, and one of the, the scholars that I greatly respect said it this way. He said, what we fail to realize is that Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden was actually an act of grace. Because in the garden was another tree, and it's the tree of life. And had Adam and Eve had the opportunity in their sinful, fallen, separated state to eat from the tree of life, they would have lived forever. They would have lived forever separated, they would have lived forever sinful, and they would have lived forever in condemnation. It was actually an act of grace that God said, hey, you can no longer be in the garden. Your rebellion, your sinfulness leads you outside of the garden. And from the moment they're kicked out of the garden begins the history of redemption that is coming. And so the first meal is in the garden of Eden, but it's a, it's a meal of rebellion. And see, one of the things that's interesting, like if we, if we really get into this, is that as we see in the Bible that eating and feasting and celebrating are actually part of the, the life and the way of God's people, that if you really look at the history and the flow and the rhythm of the nation of Israel, that it really goes from feast to celebration to feast to celebration to, to times of, of weeping and mourning back to celebration, and that everything they do is kind of, they put a fence post on the ground and there's some sort of feast and some sort of celebration and some sort of remembrance. Now we also see that all throughout scripture that there's famines, and see, a famine on just a general level is horrible. It means there's no food. And so on one level, you say, hey, a famine is hard because you can't get food in your belly. And if you can't put food in your belly, then, then, then you'll die. But on another level, is that, hey, if there's no food, then it means there's no feast. If there's no food, that means there's no celebration. If there's no food, it means we can't, we can't celebrate and live the life that we were intended to live. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and not until like just one page later in the Bible do they see one son killing another son. If you ever have kids and wonder why they can't get along, well, Adam and Eve learned that lesson the hard way. And so what happens is, is Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. They continue to have children. Their family continues to grow. Some time goes by. There's a guy named Abraham that God speaks to Abraham and calls Abraham out and says, hey, from you, I'm going to create the nation of Israel. He tells Abraham, you will have so many sons and daughters. They'll be like trying to count the grain of sand on a beach. It'll just be too difficult and too hard. And so the nation of Israel continues to grow. The population continues to get into the millions. And a famine hits the land. And so what happens is the nation of Israel moves themselves to Egypt. Because there's food in Egypt, because there's reserves in Egypt, because there's places to live and jobs to work and food to be had, they stay in Egypt for around 440 years. 
The issue is, is as the nation of Israel is transplanted into the nation of, of Egypt, what happens is there's a succession of pharaohs. And so Pharaoh goes to Pharaoh, goes to Pharaoh, goes to Pharaoh. And here's what's interesting about a Pharaoh. A Pharaoh is really a king who is worshipped as a god. And what's interesting is most Pharaohs believe they are of a lineage of gods. They demand to be worshipped as a god. Most of the Pharaohs over that 440 years were at least benevolent towards the nation of Israel. But there was one Pharaoh who came along who was crueler than most Pharaohs. And what happened is what he saw is that the worship of the nation of Israel towards the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rivaled his worship. So what he decided is the nation of Israel was no longer going to be allowed to worship the God of the Bible, no longer allowed to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, he enslaved them, he punished them, and treated them horribly. And so a guy named Moses, who was actually of the nation of Israel, sees the way that the Hebrew people are being treated, and he actually kills a slave driver and flees Egypt. And he lives out in the wilderness. God, through a burning bush, calls out to Moses. For the sake of time, what he tells Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh for this purpose. I need you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And what's interesting is, it's Moses tells God, he goes, but I, I have a, a speech problem. Most people would say that, that Moses stuttered or had some sort of impediment. And I love this because the way that God responds to Moses is he tells him, I am. And he says, my I am is sufficient for who you are. And he goes, my I am is so big that the great I am determines who you are, and determines who I am. And he says, Moses, if I'm with you, I am the I am. And so we know that Moses goes back to Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh, hey, I've been sent by God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's heard the cries of his people. It is a great cry, and God wants you to let his people go. Pharaoh, who believes he's a God, says, what do you mean, God? I am a God. These people belong to me. They're in my nation under my rule. What happens then, as we see in Exodus chapter 12, is what happens is, is God, I think by grace, gives Pharaoh a chance to recognize that God is God and Pharaoh is not. And so what he does is he tells Moses that every time Pharaoh says no, that what will happen is there'll be some sort of judgment that comes. That really what kind of happens is there's this like UFC cage match between Pharaoh and God, where God says, my name is above all names. And I will give you chance after chance after chance to realize that I am greater than you, that I am the one true God, and that you should worship me. I will never worship you. So every time Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses is told by God to warn Pharaoh that there's something that is coming. Something that is coming that will reveal to Pharaoh and all people that God is greater, that God is the most powerful, that his name is above all names. And so as you read through Exodus chapter 12, you see that, that God performs these miracles, sometimes through Moses, sometimes just on his own. He says, listen, I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. Like, listen, if you, don't, if you continue to rebel, if you continue to live a stubborn way, look, I'm going to send in, you're going to have a bug problem. I'm going to send in the frogs. I'm going to kill all the livestock. Like, listen, every time you say no, the judgment will get worse and worse and worse. And what we know about Pharaoh is he's a stubborn, 
hard-hearted person who is arrogant and believes that he is more powerful, more sufficient than God. And that every time Pharaoh tells God no, both Pharaoh and the nation that he rules falls into judgment. And one of the things I love about this is I think we see the nature of God, that he's patient. That God gives us chances. That there's times in your life and my life where God will come after us and go, I'm trying to reveal to you who I am. The question is, well, are we stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted or will we respond to him? And see, what happens to Pharaoh is what can ultimately happen to you and me is that sooner or later, God says, okay, you're out of chances. What God says is one day there the will come judgment. And for, Jer- for Pharaoh and the nation of Israel, it was a final plague. Where God had finally said, I've, I've given you so many chances, I've given you so many times. If you say no this time, there is a final plague that is coming and it's judgment upon the entire nation of Israel. And the final plague will be that the firstborn son in every family will die. I have to think about this for just a second. The nation of Israel, or the nation of Israel is in the millions. The nation of Egypt is in the multi-millions. And so you think about the firstborn son in every household. I don't know what the number is, but I know that the, the funeral homes didn't have the capacity to keep up with it. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that when that day of judgment comes, that it is a national day of mourning and weeping that you could audibly hear from a distance. The weeping and the crying and the mourning that took place in Egypt. But God provided a provision. God actually provided a way for lives to be spared. And what God did is he called his people to faith. What he did is just like in the garden, he said, hey, would you believe in me? Hey, would you trust in me? Would you choose to align yourself with me? Would you choose to consider me a friend? Would you hear my word and obey my word? Would you believe in me so much that you would outwardly do things because of your inward belief in who I am? And God calls them to faith. And through Moses, what he tells the nation of Israel is that God's provided a way. And what he tells them is he gives them all kinds of instructions for dinner that night. And he says, hey, at the end of dinner, when you're around your table, and if your neighbor doesn't have the means, you invite your neighbor to your table. But at the end of that night, you take a pure, spotless, blameless lamb, and you sacrifice it. And the sacrifice is done in faith. The sacrifice is done because God commanded it to be done. And he said, once the blood of the lamb has been spilled, I I want you to literally go to your front door and paint your door, paint the doorpost with the blood of the lamb. And what God tells his people is wrath is coming. There is wrath coming to the nation of Egypt. And he says, but I'm providing a way for the the wrath to pass over. I'm providing a way for death to pass over your doorsteps. I'm providing a way for you to experience the life instead of the death, for you to experience the joy instead of the mourning, for you to wake up in celebration instead of waking up at a funeral. What God tells the nation of Israel, but for that to happen, it causes a price. A sacrifice has to be made. And the sacrifice has to be that of a pure, spotless lamb. And see, the act of that would say that, hey, God, I believe in you. You make that sacrifice, hey, God, I trust in you. And what I admit is I'm a sinner. What I admit is that I do deserve your wrath. And the reason this lamb takes a sacrifice is because it's sinless, it's spotless, it's pure. And I trust that this only works because you're causing it to work. 
Scripture tells us that the homes that were covered by the blood of the Lamb, that wrath and death passed over them. That a substitute was made, the Lamb gave its life, and those who lived in faith were spared. And for thousands of years, the nation of Israel called that Passover. That in their homes, when they woke up in the morning, there was life and not death. There was rejoicing, not mourning. There was a celebration and not a funeral because God had made a way for wrath and judgment to pass over them. And what we know from from the scripture is that Pharaoh then releases the nation of Israel. And he says, just go. Your God must be greater. I don't want any more of this. And he allows the nation of Israel to leave and then pursues them. And God just deals with Pharaoh one last time time. And then for generations, for about 1,400 years, the nation of Israel every year would celebrate Passover. That every season in the month of Nisan, most of us think a Nisan's a car, but it was a month in the Jewish calendar, they would pause and they would celebrate Passover just like they did at the first Passover. That they would have the meal, they would sacrifice the lamb, And they would celebrate that God is the deliverer, that God has delivered us from Egypt. And they would tell the story, remember when we didn't have a way? Remember when we had a cruel dictator who ruled over us? God delivered us, but it's more than that. Remember when he delivered us from the sin? Remember when he delivered us from the wrath? Remember when he delivered us and his judgment passed over? And they celebrated this for 1,400 years years. Now we fast forward. And Jesus has entered the scene. He is a grown man in his 30s. And he begins to perform his ministry and goes public. And, you know, think about this for a second. Our nation is not that old. Like we're in the 300s. 1,400 years. So for 1,400 years they had celebrated Passover. Sometimes, because we don't know the culture, we fail to realize the sheer beauty and the sheer astonishment of some of the statements that have been made in Scripture. So Jesus shows up, and his cousin John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, announces to everyone at the lake shore. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For every Jewish person, they're going, wait a minute, that's, he's talking about the Passover lamb. There's only one lamb that causes the Passover, and that's the lamb that we celebrate each Passover. And John the Baptist announces, he's here. He is the one. He's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. He is the true Passover, the lamb of God who washes away the sin of the world. His name is Jesus. Paul talks about him this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul goes, he's the fulfillment. Listen, there's two reasons that you didn't bring a sacrifice with you to church today. The first one is because it's not legal. Okay, People would think you're weird if you had a goat in your car. And you're like, hey, just go on to church, neighbor. They wouldn't come with you. It's illegal. If we went in the back and just started slaughtering animals, okay, we'd have trouble. So number one, it's illegal. Number two... You don't have to do it anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. But in the pattern of the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to be made continually, seasonally, annually because it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't one for all time. But Paul says, listen, Jesus is our Passover lamb. One sacrifice for all people for all time. He fulfills it. 
He doesn't just do away with it. He fulfills it. He satisfies the wrath and the judgment of God so we could have it pass over us. I love this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. It says that when we're all in heaven together, along with the angels and the saints who have gone before us, we'll sing this song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That one of the ways we'll worship Jesus in heaven is as the Passover lamb. So Jesus is announced by John the Baptist that he is the Passover lamb. For about three years, Jesus has been doing ministry. He's been declaring the kingdom of God. He's been teaching. He's been performing miracles. He's been driving out demons. And the season of Passover comes. And Jesus tells his people, hey, it's Passover. Hey, disciples, it's Passover. Find a place for us so we can celebrate Passover. And so meal number three is the Last Supper, Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus gathers with his disciples for Passover. Now listen, they had been doing this for 1,400 years. Pretty established. Like not a lot of wiggle room in the way you do Passover. It's been established. God established it. He spoke it to Moses. The Pharisees enforced it. There's only really one way to do Passover, about 1,400 years. Now I want you to get this. I want you to emotionally connect with this, okay? The Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. Like, you want to start talking about what did they mean and what did they say and, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And people will get angry and they'll fight. That's just like a few hundred years of history, okay? That's just like a few hundred years of stuff. 1,400 years the nation of Israel has been celebrating Passover. And in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus gets together with his disciples and it says this. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. No one had ever done this before. The disciples are gathered around Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you can't do that. You're claiming to be God. Like you're you're claiming to to be somebody that no one has ever claimed to be. You're, You're taking Passover in a completely different way. And Jesus continues And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That, like, the reason our minds fail to explode when we see Jesus says this is because we don't get the history of it. But for the disciples, they're going, This is new. This is different. We've never celebrated Passover like this before. And Jesus meets with his disciples, and this is what he says to them. He says, I am the Passover lamb. He goes, listen, the reason I'm celebrating this Passover with you isn't so that we can just remember what God has done. It's because I'm doing something new. And as he takes the bread and he breaks the bread, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Like, uh, there's something coming that is greater. And then Jesus hands them a cup and says, this represents my blood. But what it really represents is a new covenant that you can be forgiven. Because here's what every good Jewish boy and every Jewish girl knew about sin. Is when we sin, we sin against God. 
which means God is the only one that can forgive our sins. Listen, listen, and I don't, I, I don't, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just being real. You don't need a priest to forgive your sins. You need God to forgive your sins. You don't need me to forgive your sins. I need someone to forgive my sins. And as, as Jesus sits before his disciples at the Last Supper, here's what he announces to them. I'm God, and I can forgive you. And it's not just that I can forgive you, I do forgive you. And he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. And he hands the cup and he goes, this is new meeting. This is a new covenant. This is a new promise. You can be forgiven. He says, this Passover meal, yes, it has to do with what happened back in Egypt, but it also has to do with what I'm about to do for you once and for all. What he tells his disciples, what he tells us, he goes, whenever you see the bread broken, remember, he gave his body, that he suffered immensely the wrath that you and I deserved, and that he shed his blood on our behalf for us is a new promise between us and God that we can be forgiven, not by our own might, not by our own merit, not by our own achievements, but simply by the grace and the goodness of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he is the lamb, that he is God, and that we can be forgiven. Now here's the thing. This either has to be true or false. Listen, we, we try to spend so much time trying to like water down Jesus and change Jesus. And here's my thing. You have to take him as he is. And so Jesus either is the Lamb of God. He, he is God. Either he is or he isn't. But don't try to change who he claimed to be. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was saying at the Passover. And he was announcing to the world that he is the Lamb, that he is God, that he alone can forgive us for our sins. And at Redemption Church, we believe that deeply. That informs everything we do. That we believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that he is our substitute, that he is our atonement, that he is our Passover lamb, that we are saved through him and by him and for him and in him and in him alone, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We believe that. And that that salvation is available to every single person on the planet if they respond and if they believe and if they put their trust in Jesus. And so every time we take communion, it's about Jesus. Every time we, we break the bread and we pass out the cups, it's about Jesus. Now, just, to, just because we all come from different church backgrounds, like I'm going to take this opportunity to give you a little talk about communion, just real quick, and we can argue later. But we tend to believe with the theologian John Calvin in his thoughts on communion. And see, if you, if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, odds are what you believe is that somehow mysteriously the bread turns into the literal body of Jesus and the juice turns into the literal blood of Jesus. Uh, we tend not to believe that. We tend to believe that Jesus is in communion, but it's not necessarily that he's in the bread or he's in the juice. That what we believe is the bread is bread and the juice is juice. 
And that when Jesus at the Passover said, this is my bread, it means this, this represents me. And when he says, this is, this, this, like the, it was wine. When he gave him the wine, he says, and this represents my blood. He wasn't saying, miraculously, this turned into my, my flesh and my blood. Because here's the thing. You got to think about this for a second. Jesus is there. Like at the first, last, at the last supper, he can't be like, oh yeah, and this is my flesh. He goes, no, that's your flesh. Like you're right there. What do you mean this is your blood? Your blood's in you. Like it, it can't be. But what we do believe is that when we take communion, that Jesus is present in us and through us and around us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That when, when the body of believers gather, the Spirit fills us, that we gather in the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. And when we focus on Jesus, when we open his word, when we praise his name, that he is with us. And when we repent of our sin, that the powerful presence of Jesus is on us. And that whenever we come and take communion, when we judge ourselves, when we repent of our sin, when we realign ourselves with Jesus, that is a sacred and powerful moment that Jesus shows up in every time. And that communion is all about him. And so when we do this, when we, when we pause and share a little meal together, when we pause and we open up our Bibles and we'll sing some songs in a little bit, because like, listen, we really think through this. Like the reason you're sitting now and then we'll take communion, the reason we have you stand after communion and sing songs is because it represents that Jesus went into the grave, but then he left and stood up. And so we stand to worship representing that the tomb is empty, that just like Jesus got up, we get up. And when we worship him, we join in thousands of years of church history of believers eating together, treasuring Jesus together, being satisfied in Christ alone and celebrating his life and his death and his resurrection. Which leads to meal number four, communion. See, at the Last Supper, it was Passover. And what happened then in the early church is they took the Passover meal of Jesus and turned it into something else. And they called it communion. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it talks about the early church, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's reading the Bible, and the fellowship, that's getting around a table and doing life together, and the breaking of bread and prayers, that's communion. And this was something they did all the time. It said they devoted themselves to it. Now, here's what I think. This is my own personal translation. I think the reason the scripture says they devoted themselves to it is for, is for two reasons. One, to show that it was something they did all the time. So it wasn't like a one-year, like, hey, celebration service, 1st of January, we do it once a year. They did it all the time. So they had to devote themselves to it because they had to make room in their lives to do it. I think the other reason they had to devote themselves to it is because what happens like in any family will happen in the church family. We will tend to annoy one another. Like, listen, if you get into this fellowship thing, if you really buy into community, what will happen is eventually somebody will step on your toes. Somebody will say the wrong thing to you. You'll discover that people don't agree with everything that you agree with. And so there's a chance for conflict and a little bit of friction. And that's what family's for, right? What does your family do? You love them dearly, but they tend to annoy you just a little bit. And that's why when you have like the big family gatherings, you always know there's going to be one person at that gathering is going to say the wrong thing and Uncle Johnny's going to get mad and that's, and that's just family. And that tends to happen in the church. There's times that we, we just get on each other's nerve that we say the wrong things and if you get into it, it just means we love one another because Jesus first loved us. So we devote ourselves to one another. We bear with one another. And if we happen to kill one another in the process, we just see Jesus a little bit sooner. That's fellowship. 
And the early church would do this all the time where they would just get into homes. They would, they would just get around tables. They would eat and take communion and pray together. Listen, if you want to strengthen any relationship in your life, have a good meal. Eat together. And then pray together. I don't care if that's your marriage, your relationship with your children, your neighbor, a coworker. Get around a table. Eat good food. And then pray together. Something significant and spiritual that happens. And see, what happens then is the early church celebrates communion. And what Paul tells us is communion is more than just a celebration. It's more than just a remembrance. It is also spiritually significant for our lives. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. He says, Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. And Paul goes, listen, it's not just a meal. Just like any meal is just not a meal, communion is not just a meal. It's really about where are you at with Jesus, Are you a friend of Jesus? Have you been saved by Jesus? Are you walking in obedience to Jesus? Or is there some rebellion? Are there some areas of your life where you've said, hey, I'm more of a friend of the evil one than I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm more obedient. I'm more in alignment. And communion is an opportunity to come not just to the table, but to come back to Jesus and say, I align myself with you, Jesus. I confess my sin to you, Jesus. I know, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and I need you. I am not like Pharaoh. I don't believe I'm God. I don't believe I'm worthy. I'm not building my own kingdom. I'm laying myself down at your feet, Jesus, because your name is above all names. And Paul says, be careful then. He says, be careful when you take communion that you don't take it in arrogance or pride. Don't just take it so people at church think you're holy or righteous. Take it to really celebrate who Jesus is, and if you don't, you could actually drink wrath upon yourself. Now, I've never seen it happen before, but wouldn't it be a sobering moment if somebody in our midst took communion and then died? Like, the plate would come your way, and you'd be like, I need a couple more minutes to pray. Like, I'm not going to take that yet. But Paul says, listen, this is serious business. And my guess is that Paul's not making this stuff up. He's like, hey, remember like that last time we did communion, I had to step over a few bodies to get up and get the elements. Judge yourself. Repent of your sin. Make sure you're right with Jesus. Because communion's more than just a meal. It's the best meal ever where we have communion and relationship and friendship with Jesus. Now, one of the things that's really cool when we get to meal number five is that as we celebrate communion, it's really just practice for heaven. What's really interesting in Revelation chapter 19, one of the last books of the Bible, It reminds us that the Bible opens with a meal eaten without God in a garden. And that meal eaten without God leads to destruction, damnation, shame, rebuke, and condemnation. But the Bible ends with a meal in a new garden. And that meal ends with life, salvation, celebration, forgiveness, and relationships. I love the way John talks about it in Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out. He's like, this is like a stadium. 
He's like, this is like when the roar in a stadium gets so loud, like you can't even make out necessarily what they're saying anymore. It's just like the ocean crashing, that it's just like the anticipation rising and people yelling. And what we'll be yelling is, here comes Jesus. We get to see him. That we no longer walk by faith, but now we get to walk by sight because we see the perfect, beautiful, resurrected Jesus. And that we'll be seated at a banqueting table all of heaven. It'll be great. It'll be like, there's grandpa and Moses. Like, we're going to have dinner tonight. And Jesus walks in and everyone at the tables are roaring and cheering. There he is. It's Jesus. It's the lamb. And this is what he says, we'll say, he says, hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. What he says is that Jesus has set a table for us. That's a banqueting table. And he goes on in verse 7 to say, Let us rejoice and exalt and give glory. It means be happy, celebrate, cheer. One of the things that's interesting, I think anyway, is that like we as Christians aren't known for being overly happy people. Like most people haven't been like, you know, the thing about that church is they just throw away too many parties. Like, they're just way too happy. That's my problem with them. Like, they need to take life a little more seriously. But John's going, do you know what heaven's like? In the glory of Jesus, we celebrate, we laugh, we, we have a good time. There's this great banquet where Jesus has set the table and he's going to pay the bill. And the food is wonderful. And what it, this feast is called is the marriage of the Lamb. That's what he says in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. He says, listen, this is where Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. This is like going to a wedding and, and being at the banquet ceremony afterwards where there's food and dancing and a DJ and music. He says, and then Jesus enters the room, it's like we are the bride and he's come to take us away. He's come to rescue us. He's come to lead us to where he wants us to go. I love this because Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding party, turning water into wine. And the Bible closes with us in a wedding party in heaven with Jesus. Verse 8, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to go eat any type of meal, I don't wear white because it's bad news. I, I typically have not enjoyed a good meal until I spill some right about here. So no white for me, dark colors, stain resistant. But what Revelation says is that we sit at the table, we be dressed in fine linens that are white. What he means is that as we sit at the banquet table in heaven, that there's no guilt, there's no sin, there's no shame. That in that moment, we will be most like Jesus, that we will be pure, spotless, and blameless. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no separation, no worry or concern that people might discover the things that we're hiding, the skeletons in our closet, but we will be made righteous and new and holy, just like Jesus is holy. And I love how John ends this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
means you're blessed. It means you're blessed because you've been invited to that table. You've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb where one day in heaven and glory we will sit at a ginormous banqueting table that's been set by Jesus where we'll see Jesus and for the first time Jesus will take communion fully with his people again and you're invited. That God has sent you an RSVP in his son for that meal but you have to respond. Just like any RSVP you have to say yes I'm coming or no I can't. And what every single one of us gets is an invitation. An invitation to turn from our sin, an invitation to trust in Jesus. An invitation that he would be our Lord and our Savior, that he would be our friend, that we would eat with him, that we would live for him, that we would walk in obedience to him. And one day, just like he rose, that we would rise with him to be made new and clean. And so today as we gather for communion, it's an outward demonstration of our inward faith. It's an opportunity for us to come together and remember who Jesus is, that his body was given, that his blood was shed so that the wrath of God would pass over us. It's an opportunity for us to come to the table and say, you know what, I am saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. The only thing that I have, the only compelling reason that I have for God to forgive me and to accept me and to allow me into heaven is simply this. His name is Jesus. And he is my Passover lamb. And because of Jesus, when we come to the communion table, it's unlike the meal in the garden. Because of Jesus, we can come to this table and say, I choose to be friends with God. I choose to live in alignment to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That because Jesus first loved me, I have the opportunity to love God and know him fully. When we come to the table in this meal, we say that by faith I receive Jesus. By faith I receive his spirit within me. And by faith I continue to walk. And by faith I RSVP to the banqueting table in heaven. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week. But in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.